super happy to welcome back Paul Hodges, chairman of New Normal Consulting and publisher of the PH Report. Just want to say that the PH Report is a research partner of Forward Guidance. And if you stick around to the end of the episode, you can hear uh, how you can get $1,000 off to this premium research product. Paul, great to have you back. How have you been? Oh, thanks, Jack. Yes, uh, I think busy is the, is the word. I mean, uh, the, the, the devil make, makes work for uh, idle hands. And uh, eventually the last few months since we last talked have certainly uh, kept us very busy. Yes, in the same way that a lot of folks want to know about central banks and hiking interest rates. And so, you know, I've been a, a little bit busy and it's kind of a, you know, a in demand time, you too. Your you know your knowledge has been in demand. You are an expert in the chemicals business, uh, as well as just business cycle and macroeconomics. But your specialty really is in the chemicals sector, which was you know quite quite niche, quite a rare field of study uh, when it comes to finance. And you are seeing some interesting things just going through the latest edition of the PH report. Uh, can you explain why you you know, the PH report? It, it, it's, it's called uh, happens to be a, a reference to your initials, uh, but it also is a pH report. It's in a litmus test uh, measuring basic acidic, and you view chemicals as the litmus test for the global economy. And it has a big uh, leading indicator. What happens in the chemicals industry in February is what is going to happen to the global economy in November, for example. Can you talk a little bit yeah. about that? Uh, what you saw in the 2020 and 2021 that sort of led you to think inflation was on the way. And what are you seeing now? Right. So, I mean, it, it's it, cut to the chase to start, Jack. I mean, what, what we saw um, initially uh, sort of a year or so ago was really entrenched in inflation. And we were having arguments with the central bank and people who were saying this is all transitory and so on. And then for the last six or nine months, we've been having arguments with the same people over recession because we're very clearly seeing recession now. And I see the IMF has, has finally adjusted to this and so on. And, and our, our, our third uh, call on this, uh, which I'm sure we're going to get uh, lots of pushback on as usual for the previous two, is this is going, really going to hit earnings. And you know when, when, I, when I look at a lot of the forecasts on the street, they all say, oh, but the P ratio is okay. It's actually come down a bit, so so on. And I'm going, guys, have a look at the E bit of the PE before you say it's okay. Because if that E is going to be halved, which I think is not unreasonable in many cases, um, then uh, maybe it's not quite as good as you see. But the reason why we can do this is that chemicals is a very, very large industry. It's the third largest industry after energy and agriculture. It's been going on a, a, a long time. And obviously, most chemicals today are made out of oil and, and gas, but before that, they were made from coal and so on. So you're, you're looking at an industry which goes into virtually everything in our daily lives. You know, everything connected with the screen that we're looking at and so on, everything in the offices, in our homes, carpets, curtains, pharmaceuticals, uh, you know, coatings, you name it, sort of thing, fertilizers. And so on. we may talk about fertilizers a bit later on, because that's a disaster area, obviously. Um, and so, so we, you know, we, we see all of these industries happening in real time. They also go into every single country because we've been around so long. And then the other thing, of course, is that we're relatively early in the value chain. So if you, you know, we all know that unemployment is a lagging indicator. You know, people only sat 
you know, their employees when they haven't got any business for them, when they've got, you know, so on. So it's, it's a lagging indicator. But with chemicals, what we're seeing is the impact all the time of two things. One is what's happening on supply in terms of oil and gas, and also what's happening in terms of demand, in terms of what's happening with the consumer, what, you know, particularly the consumer, because the majority of our uh, of our activities goes into construction, into autos, into electronics. So very much uh, sort of very close to the consumer. So, uh, so, and we, so we see exactly what's happening. You know, Walmart is saying something or if Shell Oil is saying something, you know, we're, we're impacted by that almost immediately one way or another. Right. So when companies have a lot of demand, they're buying a lot of chemicals because packaging product, all these things require require chemicals. So as you say, you're early in the value chain. Now chemical prices are falling. And what does that indicate to you about the, the global economy? And is, is the you know, regional economies as well as the global economy, is it going into recession? I mean, how, how bad is it based on what you look? And, and you know, please feel free to share with us some, some details just about the pricing of, of chemicals. Mm. Well, we, 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 we partner with our friends at ICIS, who are the sort of leading players in this. And so uh, in our, our chart uh, that, that you used, um, you, you can see what's, what, what they're recording from their they've got 180 price reporters around the world covering most of the major products. And so what we're, what we're seeing there is that, and this is the most complicated sort of environment that I've ever seen. What we saw in March 2020 was suddenly everybody was locked down. And so they went online and they were ordering and they were ordering you know, stuff which came in plastic. And, you know, if you remember, people were very worried about health and so on. So they wanted it to be wrapped in plastic uh, in order to uh, to protect themselves from that. So there was a massive surge in demand for uh, for plastic of all kinds. And plastic is the main product we make, you know, all the other things, but plastic is, a, is, a, is a, ma a main product here. So massive surge there. And at the same time, of course, COVID meant that factories weren't able to run properly. And then if you fast forward a bit, we then got into complete supply chain chaos where China, which was main source of many of the products uh, that we buy, so, you know, had locked down, went on to zero COVID. And so ships were, were unable to load. Then we got the ships loaded, but they couldn't unload at LA. You know, I seem to remember it's about 108, 108 ships were waiting to offload in sort of August, September last year. Uh, and so on. So, and, and what a purchasing manager did was there's only one thing that a purchasing manager can really get sacked for, and that's the product. Because you know anything else, you might lose your bonus or whatever. But that 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 costs the company a fortune. So, given that demand appeared to be so strong, given that interest rates were very low, purchasing managers did exactly the obvious thing, and they bought two or three times what they wanted. So if I was a purchasing manager and I was looking to buy, you know, polypropylene, for example, or polyethylene or whatever, I would I would come to you and I say, hey, Jack, have you got some? And you say, yes, I'm not quite sure. Have you got some this week? I've, probably not this week, Paul, but I could probably manage some next week. OK, great. Tell me how much you give me. I'll buy it. And the price would and then would, go, would uh, represent that as in the price would go higher. 
Yeah. Well, yeah, because you'd obviously say, well, here's a mug coming along. Yeah. He's desperate. I wonder how much I can charge yeah. for him. Um, and you know, so, you know, normal laws that spine him on. And, and I get the sense from you that you weren't quite sure that you would be able to supply next week, uh, even though I just paid you this ridiculous price. So I go to, you know, a couple of other people and order. But it didn't, it didn't matter. As I say, interest rates were low and demand appeared to be very strong. And this, unfortunately, is what always happens in the chemical industry because of our position in the value chain that we overlook the fact that what's really happening is two things one is that people are building inventory in this case perfectly sensible reasons because it's very difficult to get hold of product i have to get hold of it therefore i over order and secondly of course as prices go up so things become less affordable and the data that we have you know, from uh, ISM and everything else, uh, it's all, all backward looking. You know, it can tell you what was happening back in August and September. It doesn't tell you what's happening on the ground today. Um, you know, you have to go to Walmart for that or, uh, or, or P&G. And so to cut a long story short, where we ended up was we had a, a bumper amount of inventory sitting there and we had very high prices and actually no demand. Oh, Houston, we have a problem. And so now what we're seeing is that inventory being unwound and prices falling and operating rates coming down. And, and we're in a catch-22 situation now because of the high energy prices and because of the high uh, interest rates and mortgage rates. What we're now seeing is that the consumer, we're not, we haven't got a level playing field anymore. So if you go back to 2020, you could argue that if everything had been was the same today as in 2020, yeah, okay, we'd get rid of that inventory, it'd be a, you know, a bad experience for us, we'd pretend to learn from it and so on, but life would go on business as usual sort of thing. But it's not going on business as usual because consumers are having to pay a lot more for their mortgages if they're moving and they have to pay a lot more for their um, for their energy and so and their, and their gas and so on. So. So the, the, the world has shifted around. And what we're saying is because of that, consumers have less discretionary cash. So company earnings are going down. Thanks for explaining that, Paul. What is your level of confidence? You know, I'm sure that maybe in 2015 and 2016, prices were falling. That didn't lead to a recession, though. It was just a mid-cycle slowdown. Uh, what's your level of confidence that you know, it, what we won't just the, the level of growth won't just slow, let's say, from 9%, which is too high, to 2%, but that it will actually dip into negative terms, uh, inflation-adjusted terms, which we've already had in the U.S. So what, what, is your, what are the odds that we're already in a recession or are soon headed for one, let's say, across three regions, uh, the, the U.S., Europe, and uh, China and Japan? I, I, I think yeah, we're 90% uh, in recession in uh, in Europe and the same in uh, in in Asia, um, we we had uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, in Berlin in Germany the uh, European Petrochemical Association annual meeting and about three thousand people turn up for that around the world. We had a full team there of people, so we had lots and lots of meetings during the week, and the the, the tone was well. I think the best tone came from an American who came in saying the first time I've been back to Europe now for two years because of COVID and so on. Boy, has it changed. And we went, yeah, that's changed indeed. Yeah. He said, yeah, until, you know, when I, when I was sitting in Houston, you know, I, could, I was pretty sure that Asia was in recession and Europe was in recession. And now I've come here, I've gone, well, 
surely the U.S. is in recession too. We just haven't noticed yet. Right, Paul, Paul let me explain that a little bit for the audience. So there's chemicals which large companies buy, and that's a harbinger of what's to come in the, in the global economy, as we've been talking about. And then there are the companies that make those chemicals. And a lot of those companies are often attached to major oil and gas companies because input costs to uh, produce naphtha, polyethylene, stuff like that is, is oil, natural gas, other hydrocarbons. And you know, the, the Shell, for example, has a lot of hydrocarbons laying around. So even though Shell uh, as a company is doing fantastically well financially because the, the price of oil and natural gas is sky high, the unit's called the chemicals unit, not the refinery unit, which makes jet fuel, which is also very high, or, or gasoline, but specifically they make naphthene, polyethylene. Though that specific part of the business, which you have a lot of experience in, is that that uh, that is an absolutely really tough business right now because the what you're selling is the chemicals which are collapsing in value and your input costs are oil and gas which have skyrocketed value so you're, you're they're, they're getting it on, on both ends and so you were just at this conference where you were meeting other people in the industry of the chemicals industry and can you just say yes how how negative was the mood i mean yeah, was it the, some of the most negative uh, sentiment you've seen in, in your career? Um, and, you know, was there, was there gallows humor? Is, just tell us just how grim it was. Just how grim, yes. Um, um, you know, I, I always think if you watch a news broadcast and they say, you know, how bad is it? That tells you it's pretty near catastrophe. If they say just how, you think, you know, uh, I, always, I always want my correspondent just how serious to turn up. And just, well, I'm your correspondent. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you are. Just, just how Jack. Um, the, the mood, on the one hand, of course, was very positive because it's the first time that most people have actually had an in-person meeting like this for a couple of years. Uh, and, and it was wonderful timing because the one thing you do need to do at times like this is to meet your colleagues from around the world and exchange notes and so on. So it was incredibly valuable from that point of view. Um, the, 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 the tone is, and, I, and I've not been a fan of central banks, but I think the central banks are coming around to reality finally. And Christine Lajard, the president of the European Chemical Bank, uh, not Chemical Bank, Freudian slip there, Next week, uh, the European Central Bank uh, actually came out in uh, August with a mea culpa and said, you know, our, uh, our models don't actually reflect some of the key things. And she itemized three key things. She itemized geopolitics, energy prices, and demographics. And she said, these are things that are not reflected in our models. And clearly they are what's really driving the economy at the moment, which is of course great because that's exactly what we write about in the PH report all the time and what we talk to our clients about. So one is kind of pleased that at the end, She's no longer looking at her models. She's starting to look out the window. But in answer then to your question of just how serious this is, the only comparison I think in the post-war world is with the mid 70s, early 80s, with the OPEC oil embargoes. And you know, if you look back at the photos of 73, 74, and the lines of cars you know, queuing, queuing up for uh, for gasoline uh, in in the U.S. and the, the same lines lines of cars everywhere uh, around the world. You know, governments in Europe uh, getting out war, World War Two ration books and issuing them to uh, uh, to car owners and, and so on. 
Uh, that was pretty bad. Uh, the economy uh, obviously went into a nosedive. Uh, we had three-day weeks and so on, etc., uh, etc. Et um, but of course, it was only oil. So natural gas was okay. And also, we didn't have a major war in the um, in, in the European continent. Uh, we had the Vietnam War. Don't want to underestimate that. Um, but Vietnam at the time was not a major economic center. So now uh, you've, you've, you've got a position where in Europe, the because of what's happened on, on natural gas and the, 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 first of all, the cutbacks that President Putin started to show, uh, the, because, because of that, you, you got into much higher prices for, for natural gas and tenfold higher. That had another effect, which is that most food that we produce involves fertilizer to some extent. And you know, if you look at our world in data, for example, which is a pretty authoritative source, they suggest that only half of the world's population, so only 4 billion people, could be fed without nitrogen fertilizer. And what you've now seen for several months is because of the high price of natural gas, 70%, that's 70% of, uh, of, of uh, ammonia production and fertilizer production in Europe is now shut down. Now, we haven't noticed that yet. We've seen some increases in, in, in food prices in milk and butter and things like that. But we're now coming to the planting season for next year, you know, winter wheat and then so on and so forth. And there simply isn't either the availability of fertilizer or the affordability of this. So if you look at those charts of, of how, how it was, what you're seeing you know, in 70 to 78 is that the, you know, the interest rates were much higher. And if you look at today where we are, we're seeing a picture where the S&P 500 has been coming down. And if you invert the 10 year yield, that they'd be matching each other. And so, and that's quite unusual. Yes. You know, if you look at a normal pension fund, you know, they would have 60% in equities and 40% in bonds. So if the, the S&P goes down, the bond price goes up. That's not what's happening today. Now, people keep saying, oh, the Fed is going to pivot. You know, we keep having these, these brief rallies and so on. But supposing for a moment, supposing for a moment that Lajard was right, that the models aren't telling you the whole truth, and that actually what you need to be looking at is geopolitics, energy prices, and demographics. What can the Fed do to restore fertilizer production in Europe? What can the European Central Bank do to restore fertilizer? I don't think they can do very much. What can they do, for example, in China to uh, stop the zero COVID policy, which is really decimating the economy to the point that you know, China isn't actually publishing at the moment its quarter three GDP estimate. Really? Uh, it was suddenly cancelled uh, this this week. So, you know, what, well, we don't know why, but it, it, it implies when people cancel something, it implies usually that things aren't going that well. And things going very well during Congress, you tend to say, well, are we doing well? So is that, and of course there's demographics because the, the whole of the story, we've talked about this in the past, we may come back to it, is why have the central banks done all this stimulus for the past 20 years? Because essentially they are printing babies. And printing babies 
is essentially you have you've got an aging population. You've got people now. The only growth um, segment in the developed world today is the over 55s. That's a picture for China. It's the same if you want to look in uh, uh, in, 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 in the developed world as well. Japan is obviously the, the most advanced uh, example of that, but all, all the countries are the same. So if your only growth segment now is in the over 55s, unfortunately, what that means is that people are, you know, that, that growth segment is actually buying less because they already own most of what they need right. and they are retiring. So they have less money. What you want, which is what we had for 20 years, which was the boom, the baby boom, when you had all those babies born after the war, globally, between 1946 and 1970, in the States particularly concentrated between 46 and 64, you, of course you had a lot of inflation because you had lots of demand and also you were moving from a wartime economy. You know, you've got a factory that was that was making tanks and fighter planes. You can't convert that overnight to make refrigerators and washing machines. So, of course, you're falling behind and so on. You know, Friedman identified this with uh, with monetary policy. Well, correlation is correlation. I agree. But it's not the cause. It wasn't, mon it wasn't monetary policy that caused all that. It was demand. Right. And demand comes from people. Now, because of Friedman, because because. Um, and Friedman didn't have access to the demographic stats at the time, so I don't blame Friedman, but I do blame Bernanke, I do blame Yellen, I do blame the other central bankers, because they took this as gospel because it boosted their, their power. Oh, we control this as independent central banks. And what they didn't do was look out the window and say, actually, the world has now changed. All of those wealth creators are now moving into the perennials group. And what is worse for the economy but jolly good news for you and I is that these perennials are living longer. So instead of people, you know, if you go back 100 years, people died at 50. Then, you know, in 1950, they were dying at 65, around pension age. Now they're dying at 80. Now, this is, this is really very good news for individuals, mm -hmm. but it's very bad news for economic growth. So which do you want? You know, I, I, <laughs> right. I, 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 I don't think that you know, there are many politicians who would run for office on the basis of let's, let's somehow eliminate everyone over 65 so we can get back to growth. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't vote for it. <laughs> Paul, so that's a disinflationary trend that you've identified, uh, aging populations, yeah. people who are younger, they buy furniture, they buy houses, they have babies, people who are older, they don't, uh, they save money more to... Uh, on the margin more than spending money. How do you, but that disinflationary tailwind has been with us for what, 30 years? How do you square that with the inflationary headwind we have of commodity price uh, surges, uh, the war, the, the offshoring into higher uh, labor intensive uh, industri industries? Um, because that chart that we showed earlier of the S&P 500 and the inverted 10 year yield, uh, frequent viewers of this program will be familiar that sort of a hallmark over the past 30 years of portfolio management was the 60-40 portfolio. You own 60% stocks. Those will get you some solid returns. But then if there's a recession, bonds will do well, and they'll sort of ballast the, the falling equity prices. Anyone who has a 60-40 portfolio this year knows, unfortunately, that's not been the case. Bonds have fallen in price alongside stocks, meaning that yields have risen. And that the real last time that that happened is the 1970s. So if you're drawing a parallel between now and the Yom Kippur War in the, in the 1973-1974, uh, do you expect bond prices to continue to fall with stocks? Because it seems like you sort of have these two trends where on the one hand, you know, you, you 
believe mm. the structural disinflation from demographics. But on the other hand, you you notice these huge supply side constraints that that may continue. So and and also the recession that you currently see in in China and Europe, and you you, you see uh, imminently in the U.S. If, if not already, do you think that that will significantly slow inflation? When I if I wake up in the morning and I I feel a bit down, the sure way of cheering myself up is to read the market commentaries, because the market commentaries by and large focus on the yield curve. So this is a bit like the Greeks, yeah. and you know we want to know if we're going to be uh, able to uh, to win the war against the Trojans, for example. So we go up to Delphi and we pay the high priestess some money and she kills a bird and she opens it up and she throws it up in the air and the way it lands and so on. And we go, yeah, it's going to be okay. You're, you're, going, to, you're going to win in, uh, in, in Troy or, or, or not, as the case may be. And, and you occur to like that. You know, this is the sort of black box of thing. So... I mean, I'm not saying that the yield curve has no relevance, but what we're looking at today is a very complicated world, a world where China is pursuing a number of policies which are really pulling down the economy and creating international tension, uh, where you've got in Europe, uh, you've got President Putin you know, killing people. Uh, first war we've had on European soil in that you know, with a major power we had it in in in, in Serbia and so on uh, in the nineties. Uh, so we, we've got a massive war going on there. Uh, we've also got you know major uh, sort of splits in in the states as we know polarization so on and so forth. And so if you're trying to make sense of what you're what's happening, you actually you need to have a lot of experience. You know, you, you know, because experience doesn't necessarily, Mark Twain is right, you know, history doesn't necessarily repeat, but it does rhyme. And so you can look at something, and if you're able to look back and say, well, actually, this is what happened. Now, that isn't the same today. So obviously, the results work too, but you're, you're starting. But where so wait, Paul, we? are you telling me that if someone's 22 years old and they saw a chart of a yield curve on Twitter, that they may not automatically understand the workings of the global economy and where the global economy is headed? Is that, yeah, that's, that's crazy. Oh, yeah. Wow. I, I mean, I, I, I mean, obviously, yeah, you've just called me out there, Jack, and I, I have to admit that this is, you know, it, it's my, my life is wasted. Uh, after 22, it's, it's finished. <laughs> well, Paul, that joke aside, you know, I do have to stick up for my brethren in macro that, you know, yes, you, you are an expert in chemicals and chemicals does have a very good track mm. record of forecasting economic growth or uh, economic contractions, mm. aka recessions. I have to say, so does the yield curve. You know, if people were go to go on Fred.com, the St. Louis Fed, where they find, you know, look at the, the 10 to inversion. And then anytime it goes negative, yeah. that's what, 12 to 18 months before a recession. So the yield curve, uh, 210 yield curve inverted earlier this year, mm. leading some commentators to say we're in a recession when actually that was incorrect. That shows that a recession is 12 to 18 months away. So that's why I think, you know, we're rapidly approaching a recession in the U.S., but probably not one uh, already. Uh, and my view was strengthened when I saw uh, bank earnings, U.S. bank earnings er earlier this week. Oh. Um, but the, the yield curve does have a good uh, track record. And uh, you know, it definitely may not be a – I would say it's similar to chemicals where it's not a cause of economic slowdown, but it is heavily correlated. And if you're trying to look at um, – you know, if you're trying to make predictions – 
actual predictions, correlations all all you need. You know, you don't need to know. Oh, uh, the the fall in the price of ethylene is causing a recession. No, the recession is causing the, the fall in the price of ethylene, and that's why we're able to foresee a recession before uh, it, it it happens in a in a way that you know mainstream economists measure. So, um, are you? Yeah, yeah. Describe. Do, do you think how how do you estimate the track record of, of yield curves? Uh, forecasting recession. To me, they seem pretty good, uh, with the exception of the 1970s, because central bankers didn't pivot in the 1970s. But to me, the, the, the yield curves, you know, has a pretty good track record. What, what do you think? Well, I, I'm, I'm in a position of saying yield curves have a, have a reasonable correlation with what's going on. But if, if you're doing macro, and we do macro, uh, macro to me is more than analyzing yield curves. Because you know, your, your, your 22-year-old can do that. And, you know, 22-year-olds can be right. Uh, there's no arguing about that. So what you've asked now is a really pertinent question, which is how do you balance the fact that, that we are, we've lost the demographic dividend now? We haven't got a lot of demand, but at the same time, it appears that we are, you know, we, we've got a lot of debt, which is a big headwind, that our central banks have finally given up on stimulus. And so you know, they're trying sort of one way or another to actually reverse what they've been doing for the last 20 years in terms of printing money and printing babies and so on. How do you balance that with the geopolitics that we've got? And how do you balance that with the energy prices? And this is, this is not easy. And, you know, I mean, I think what we try to do is we try to, one, identify what we think are, at the time, the key issues. And then we give you our logical view of this, and we give you a conclusion. And what our clients tend to say to us is, is particularly valuable, particularly when I get to your conclusion and I go, <laughs> and I splutter in my coffee. This is, or you know, say to my friends at the water cooler, what a load of rubbish this is. Because, because we set out the logic, and we divide it up into different sections and so on, you can go through, and obviously, if you're if you're an investor, if you're a corporate, you have access to information that we don't. And so I quite accept that you may well go back through the logic and say, I can see why they say that, but actually they're wrong. But what we also find, and some of our clients are some of the largest companies in the world, the largest investors, is they say sort of somewhat uh, ruefully, you know, sometimes we can't find anything that you're wrong. We do have access to the best source of information in, in the world, but actually you've been right. And so you know, that, that, that's our value. So we're not trying to replace individuals and their understanding of what's going on. We're trying to add to it. And one of the ways of adding to it is to say things which are logical and make sense, but which can be challenged. You know, that's how you learn. And we're very happy. You know, if we got things right 100% of the time, I, I, I'd know we weren't doing the right things. Right. Um, <laughs> and, and Paul, perhaps if the yield curve was indicating something different than the chemicals, you and I could have a little bit of a, a show off where, oh, the chemicals industry is indicating X and Ooh. the yield curve is showing Y. Uh, you certainly would, would sort of win that show off. But I'm actually grateful. I, to me, the yield curve and the chemicals industry are screaming the exact same thing, which is that a recession Ooh. is imminent. Uh, and yeah. sort of the you know, chemical prices are, are falling. And I, I want you to, to give some more details on that. Uh, the yield curve has remained inver inverted for uh, many months. And 
The way I sort of think about it is when short-term yields are higher than long-term yields, uh, that means that there are a lot of people who want to borrow short, i.e. companies need a lot of cash and they need it now. Yeah, that's, that's a sign of like a liquidity crisis, a sign of people just need money. At the same time, people don't really want to lend short term because they think that inflation and growth will uh, fall. So they want longer term securities on a relative basis. Look, if you had bought in TLT or the 30 year treasury or heaven forbid the 30 year UK guilt, that, that was a, uh, those investments have have deteriorated significantly in value. However, it is the fact yeah. that short-term rates are now higher than long-term rates. And even though losses on the long-term has been bigger just because they have uh, more, mm-hmm. more interest rate risk. Um, so th- I would say that yeah, the yield curve and <laughs> the chemicals industry are, are screaming recession. So uh, as a macro investor, it's all, you're, you're, I think the strength of your view can be strengthened when you're getting the same signal from multiple mm-hmm. reliable sources. Uh, Paul, because you know on this video, we're sort of you know, launching uh, the, the pH report as a, a research partner with Forward Guidance. Uh, let you know, so so for folks who would want to get into the pH report are would be investments and uh, investors and institutional funds who have. Uh, a need for deep knowledge of the chemical industry. Let's get into the, you know, the, the ethane, naphtha, polyethane, polyethane margins, and uh, just just what it indicates. I mean, what do you think happens uh, with the production of chemicals? Is you know, or do you think there will be some chemical companies to go bankrupt? I mean, you know, Shell just had a, a third quarter release saying that its margins, for example, for the third quarter are likely going to be negative $27 a ton compared to 80, positive $86 a ton. Uh, is, there, is there anything in your career you've seen that's been, been as bad as this? I mean, and, and what do you see going forward? You know, the, the, the parallel uh, is, is with the early, early 80s when the chemical industry ran at a loss for two or three years, um, largely because, as you were saying, it's closely connected with oil and gas. So if oil and gas companies are making lots of money, they still have to sell their naphtha or their ethane. And so that has to go into the chemicals market. And it means that even if chemical demand is down, those companies still have to run. And that's the critical thing that we're now seeing. If we look at margins for the major polymers, uh, for example, what we're seeing around the world is that they, they went weakest went weak, first of all, in, in, in Northeast Asia because of what's happening in China. Then obviously they went weak in, uh, in, in Europe uh, because of that. And they also went, went down in, uh, in the States because the States has built a lot of capacity to supply China. Well, sorry, there ain't a lot of demand in China. So you've got, so you've got, I, I, I think you've got a potential over the next two to three years for some really major shifts going on. One, one, what we do is we start with the data and we try and understand what the data is trying to tell us. We don't start with a hypothesis and then find some data to prove it because you can always do that. So, uh, and that's why we can always have a dialogue with our clients because our di- client, you know, we present the data and our clients can always come back and say, well, actually, you know, I think you've missed it and so on, but which is good. That's how we learn. And so, if you look at what we're seeing today, it's one of those situations where it's probably easier to know what's going to be happening in 2030 than it is what's going to be happening by Christmas. Because by 2030, I think you can be reasonably confident 
that we won't, you know, central banks won't be doing stimulus and all of that. We will have finished all that. Um, hopefully the war uh, in Ukraine will have come to an end. Hopefully, uh, you know, China will have stabilized, but at a much lower level of, of economic output. Uh, debt levels will be lower. Uh, we'll be, you know, we'll have moved very significantly uh, towards a net zero position because fossil fuels, after all, you know, I was I was speaking at a conference uh, yesterday to a thousand people, and what I said, you know, if every every ton or every pound of plastic that we make is another is is support for Putin, and we must move away from this. Everybody cheered, and I think you know we we cannot possibly want to continue living like this. So you know, Putin has really done wonders for the net zero. Whether or not you believe in climate change, or whether or not. Uh, you know, all those things, you cannot possibly allow yourself to continue to be uh, dominated like this. This is impossible. So we, we kind of know where the future will be, and that will be quite different, really, from today. But of course, the interesting thing is, how do we get from there to here, which I think is the nub of your question. So we've got at the moment inflation, uh, we've got rising interest rates. At the same time, uh, this is probably a bit controversial, we have a surplus of housing because we, the housing markets around the world, I did a blog post about this at the weekend, the housing markets have been a speculative area now for five to 10 years. And what, you know, if you take Airbnb as the, as the classic, what does an, what, you know, you, you're, you're a landlord, you've got some tenants and so on. And hey, presto, you're, you know, you think, okay, I'm, I know how to be a landlord and so on. Now I've got an even better bet because I don't have to worry about getting rid of tenants, you know, if they don't if they don't want to go or anything like that, and evictions and all that sort of thing. And I can set, I can charge short term rents much higher than I could get uh, from the ordinary, uh, you know, work, work, worker in an office or whatever. And so, yeah, I've got a bit of servicing and so on. So I buy apartment uh, apartment uh, an apartment, and I I rent it out, and then I up, you know the value of that goes up because. Fed keeps pushing out more money. So now I can buy another apartment. And before you know it, I've now got 20 or 30 or 100 apartments, which I'm renting out on Airbnb. And so I'm, 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 you know, I'm a multimillionaire in, on paper. But what happens when the economy turns down and the consumer discretionary spending turns down? Well, obviously, not so many people decide to go with Airbnb anymore, or they, they do go, they go at lower rates. And suddenly, the interest rate that you've got has gone up. And so you're now facing the state where you're going to have to sell some. So now you're going to be selling Airbnb apartments into a falling market. There are many ways of losing money, but that's-, that's At a time when to. most people buy with borrowed money and mortgage rates have surged from 3% to 7.5%, and it's getting way yeah. more expensive to, to, to buy property- uh, with with a mortgage, yeah. the only problem, Paul, is that even if we start to see month over month disinflation and then see month to month uh, deflation, you want to start see year over year deflation or, or disinflation until uh, maybe the spring or summer of 2023, and that is when Jay Powell will be able to have the Washington Post headline saying inflation solved, Fed Fed can now you know uh, ease once again. So uh, just because. You know, we may may reach peak inflation as you as you I think you indicated that does not mean that the Fed pivot is, is anytime is anywhere uh, soon well, well, I, 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 I slightly amend that Jack because I don't know when we'll meet peak inflation right. 
You see, I don't. If you if you take account of the factors of geopolitics and energy prices, unlike demographics, they are pushing you in a higher value because the breaking up of supply chains, for example, what does that do? There were many things about China uh, becoming the manufacturing capital of the world, but the principal one was that it kept prices down for the consumer. Right. Paul, Paul so just, just, to, just to sort of hone in on this, because you see short-term inflationary pressures remaining, do you think that year-over-year inflation in the U.S., which is 8%, or in Europe, which is 9% or 10%, do you see that close to peaking? Uh, do you see us in an age of you know, secular inflation that, that lasts a year or more? Um, I, you know, I know there are folks that say, no, we already have deflation in the system, and deflation is, is the bit, world's biggest threat. I actually saw uh, investor Kathy Wood uh, at a speech yesterday, and she said exactly that. Um, it, it doesn't sound like you're necessarily in that camp. But, but if a recession is coming, doesn't that mean we're going to have disinflation, right? No. I mean, look at, look at what happened in the, in, in, in the, in the 80s. The early eighties, we had uh, you know in, in inflation in double digits for several years, uh, even though the, the economy, the world economy, was in recession. Uh, right, so in the US, not, at least, so inflation fell quite sharply. I think starting in like eight, 1981. But in- mm, well, it, it was it was still. I mean, it, it began to come down. True, um, but you were you were you know you 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 were at fourteen percent or so. And you know, over five years, you came down to a you know, uh, sort of you know, seven or eight percent level. But yeah, you know, what we then saw, and this is a critical point, going back to your point about the sixty forty uh, portfolio. What we then saw from the late nineteen eighties onwards was a forty near forty year downtrend in bond yields. So the ten year bond, you know, came all the way down, you know, to somewhere near you know point three six, somewhere near zero, if you like. And you know, it was coming down in tram lines uh, very nicely. So it was always making you know, lo- lo- lower lows and lower highs. And then in the last six or nine months, it started to make higher highs again. Yep. Now, it's early days. But all, all I'm saying is, I don't think, as uh, someone's been doing this a while now, I don't think I know what's going to happen next. I mean, if we, if we just take right. the Ukraine, right? Uh, what we've seen is Russia has, we believe, uh, blown up the, uh, the Nord Stream pipeline. Uh, it's now uh, blowing up the electricity power stations in Ukraine. And uh, you know, it's, it's, its army is, is not very good, as we know. But really, Putin, from the behavior in, in Syria through to the Crimea and so on, doesn't really care about that right yeah you know, he's on a mission of, of destruction paul, paul you're sorry so, so, i just want to say you're, you're absolutely right and you know I, i'm just rereading um uh, the, the bankers who broke the world uh, one of my favorite books and it goes to show you know how there's massive inflation in world war one war is inflationary and you know yeah. heaven forbid i really don't hope that the, the war in ukraine lasts for as long as world war one lasts but world war one you know it, it, inflation w- was very big and bond yields rose but if you had, if you're someone who, bought, you know, bought yield, uh, yields had surged from 1914 to 1915, you said, "Oh, uh, I'm going to buy TLT because it's down 30 percent and it's broken the trend line." You didn't want to buy TLT in 1915. Uh, you know, in, in fact, I mean, according to this book, um, it basically changed British society forever because there were so many wealthy sort of uh, gentry aristocrats who had had a lot of money and they it, they owned 
the fixed income instruments, unlike the more urban capital yeah. capitalists and entrepreneurs who could pass on the price by uh, raising prices. So, yeah, I, I, I think that you're absolutely right. There's a tremendous amount of uncertainty. So, and, you know, Paul, I, I, I appreciate the fact that you're you're open about the fact that you don't know uh, your level of confidence is 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 not certain by any means in fixed income. However, Paul, it seems that you have a much higher level of of confidence with regards to the fact that the world's headed into a recession. Uh, so it's imp- the, the, the global recession that's about to come. You're saying uh, you don't know what its impact on on inflation will be because there's so many other variables: uh, supply side, war, commodity price inflation, etc. However, you do say, and this is the thing you said at the beginning, that its impacts on earnings, corporate earnings, will be quite negative. You started off uh, our interview by saying that the stock market has fallen 20%. Uh, and people said, oh, the stock market's a buy because the price to earnings ratio has compressed because the price to earnings ratio is basically an inverse of a, of a earnings yield. And you compare that to a bond yield. Bond yields have surged. So earnings yields have to be higher, which means the PEs have to be lower. So the PEs have gone down, but the E's really haven't yet so far. And, and you see that on the horizon. So can you speak to uh, your thinking on how in a recession earnings tend to go down? I mean, that that is a a, a seemingly obvious statement, but it, it's, it's, it has a lot of nuance I'd love for you to explore. Well, you see, what we've, what we've had is for 20 years, uh, what was originally known as the Greenspan put and then became the Fed put, where the central bankers decided that they could always intervene to keep the stock market rising higher. And in, in 2010, uh, Bernanke came out famously with his trickle-down statement that said, as long as the market keeps moving up, then that's going to, in the end, benefit the wider economy. You know, not much evidence of that. It benefits the people who own stocks and shares, which isn't most people. Um, So so that's where we've been. So people are very understandably uh, got into two things. One, bad news is good news. As soon as I hear bad news, ah, that makes it more likely that the Fed are going to come in and rescue us. And secondly, the, the, the idea of buying the dip. Because after all, we all know, you and I know in our hearts, Jack, that house prices can never go down now and stock prices can never go down. So, you know, and for, tw- you know, for 20 years, they haven't, despite global financial crisis and everything else and so on. So we know that true. So the only question is, and this, this is why I would argue that our report is actually quite important. Because up till now, the, the only question for an investor has been, what is Nick Timoreus saying in the Wall Street Journal about how Jay Powell is feeling? Was he feeling comfortable having his uh, his croissant or whatever it was for breakfast? Was he in a good mood? Had he indigestion from the night before? Because you know, this is vital. Because now I know if, he, you know, if, if he, he's going to get to a certain point, he will tell Nick that, don't worry, we're now going to come in and we're going to do more stimulus. And we we've, we're, you know, we are the great people. These 12 people, they're wonderful, you know, sort of um, almost like uh, Jesus and the, and the apostles. They can magically run an economy of 7.9 billion people just by raising interest rates or printing a bit more money and so on. I mean, it's a wonderful idea. And they've convinced a lot of people that it's true because they have gone in temporarily and done it. Now, what I'm arguing is that all good things come to an end. And this one has come to an end. And this is why Christine Lajard's comment is so important. Once you get geopolitics, energy prices and demographics 
to be recognised as being critical. Well, actually, what you're doing with you know, Fed watching now becomes irrelevant. What you have to do is you have to go back and relearn what we all had to learn in the 70s and 80s about how do all these things play out? Because it's not easy. It's not easy at all. But what you can do is you can say, and that's what we try and do uh, with, with, with our clients in our reports, is we try and say to them, look, this looks like the balance of risk at the moment. You know, we have our sentiment indicator, for example, which has done a brilliant job so far. At the beginning of the year, it pointed down. And the, you know, every, every single, I think, commentator in the US was saying that 2022 was going to be a year of recovery after 2021. So the S&P had to go up. And we published in December the, uh, the sentiment index and said, no, it's actually going down. And it has indeed gone down. And what was even better, although I don't know that this will always happen, um, is that it did actually pick out the false rally that we had, the bear market rally um, in, the, in the summer. And you can see that that was there. And then, of course, it, it fell apart again. So, um, you know, so, so what I'm saying is the if, if you want to continue to watch the Fed and you believe that in time we will go back to that world, I accept that. You know, that is a point of view. It's been validated by history for 20 years. It could be right. I personally don't think that that's where we're going. We don't think that. We think there are these other avenues and issues which we need to think about. And if you need to think about those, then we are one of the sources of information that you can get, which is unbiased and impartial. You know, we are independent. We don't have to tell you something. We don't have a big brokerage firm that needs orders in order to survive. We don't have buildings on Fifth Avenue that we have to pay lease on, things like this. So, so our costs are deliberately low, and we give you what we think is the honest truth. As I say, we can be wrong. You have to make a judgment about that, but why wouldn't you want to make a judgment? Because that's the world that we're moving into. Yes, Paul, I would say that your track record and the PH Report's track record for understanding and predicting, foreseeing the global economy, as well as asset prices, has been... Uh, very, very good uh, for as long as I've been following your work. Paul, two questions. One, will central banks continue to hike interest rates or even start to cut interest rates if there is a severe recession, but inflation remains high due to supply supply constraints, the war, et cetera? So question number one is, should they? Question number two is, will they? Well, if you go back to fundamentals, what have central banks got to do with interest rates? If you go back, you know, the, 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 the guy who wrote the textbook, uh, Walter Bashot, uh, you know, hundred and something years ago, said the role of the central bankers is to be the lender of last resort, and when things go wrong, to lend at penal rates of interest to those who've messed up in order to discourage them and others from doing it again. Now, what has been the role of the central banks over the last 20 years, it's been to reward those people. So it's brought down interest rates, it's printed more money to the direct opposite of everything that central banks were supposed to do. I mean, if you go back, you know, the famous, uh, famous phrase uh, of the central banks was the central bank are supposed to take over. William McChesney Martin, when he was president of the Fed, or chairman of the Fed, said the central bank's job is to take away the punch bowl as the party gets going. Whereas what the, what the Fed has been doing for the last 20 years has been refilling the punch bowl 
you haven't had enough yet, Jack. Here, have another, have another. No, bye, but you know, bye, 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 and so on. And so, my question to you, and it is a question, is not. I don't have an answer. Is if we are going to change from that environment, how does it happen that we go from a stimulus-based, debt-ridden economy to something that is now actually based on normal demographic growth and you know and and normal um, organic growth uh if you like in 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 demand do we are we magically able to go from here to there or do we go down into a valley and we come back up what i fear is that the mess they've left us is such a mess that we will actually go down into a valley and we'll have a pretty tough time payback you might call it but you know a lot of people didn't get much pay in the first place to get paid back on and and then we will come back out of it so i could definitely see a situation where we see interest rates going higher uh, because inflation could well stay higher because of supply chain problems because of geopolitics because we've got a war as you say wars are inflationary and so on and and, and the thing we haven't really touched on but what's happening with food prices mm-hmm. if you ask me what is the one thing that this war could do that would create inflation this time it's what's happening to fertilizer and food prices because you are i mean it's it's not just me and i, I i'm very complimentary at the moment of the imf and the world bank and people like that which you know i haven't been in the past but credit where credit is due you know, they came out very early in march and they said there's a minimum of 80 to 100 million people facing famine because of what's going to happen to fertilizer and you know billions of people will suffer and we're already seeing the first signs of this so if we can't get proper crops planted winter wheat and so on and we can't get the summer crops harvested that we haven't seen that in the supermarkets yet to some you know to a large extent because we've been eating last year's crops mm-hmm. but you know you look at also, also meat and so on you know you you have to feed your animals well if you can't grow the feedstock for your animals you know you can't i mean i i, I was talking to an irish farmer who was saying, you know, we're, we're, we're killing off our pigs and we're not having any new ones because we're losing 30,000 euros per pig now on the, on the total cost if we continue. And we don't know how many of those decisions will, ha- will happen like that, but I, I, I fear it could be very significant. So that's why I think that, I don't know, but I think that the thing we need to watch is what's happening to food prices, because if food prices go up, then inflation will go up, irrespective of what the Fed is doing. And I can tell you, if food prices go up, the politicians are going to be pretty upset, the voters are going to be pretty upset, and they will want something done about it. So at that point, you will see the Fed having to hike. And you say, oh, but we're in a recession, the Fed can't hike, stock prices will go down, house prices. Yes, but food prices are more important to anybody than stock prices or um, or, or, uh, or, or house prices. So that's the kind of, of thing that you've got to really watch out for. And we haven't ever had to watch out for that before. So there's no track record here. Right. And your, your friend who's a farmer, he's not uh, um, raising a, a, a more pigs. We're not going to see the, the, the Irish uh, citizenry is not going to see that in their pork CPI until what? March of next year or the summer of next year. I don't, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to present. I know yeah. the pig life cycle and everything, but uh, <laughs> uh, uh, so it's kind of baked into the cake. And yeah, I mean, corn. So much of what goes into corn is uh, fertilizer price. And it, 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 the less wealthy the country, 
the more they spend on food and the bigger percentage of their food comes from the actual vegetables themselves, unlike, you know, Wonder Bread and the supermarket, which has a lot of uh, labor and plastic and stuff and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, what was I going to say? Oh, so, so, so Paul, that's food. What about energy? Uh, the oil markets from mid-spring have been on a downward trend, which has given politicians uh, a respite uh, so that you know, U.S. President Joe Biden, uh, his press secretary can go out and say gasoline prices have fallen 100 days, 100 days in a row. And, and that is correct. So gasoline has gone down. The price of oil has gone down. But that was at a time when the Chinese economy was, you know, in a COVID lockdown and maybe 2 million barrels of demand were, were off the market. As well, the U.S. government was releasing barrels of oil from the Strategic mm. Petroleum Reserve uh, you know, up, to, up to a million barrels a day. What do you think about the price of oil? Because if it, if energy, we have another energy shock, um, that could be, that could be really bad. Well, I, I was a, an oil and products trader in Houston, Texas, uh, for two or three years, and uh, so I've always followed this market very closely. What is strange about the market for the last ten or fifteen years has been the way that the hedge funds have come in, and they've tended to because you know. When I was first around, you know, futures markets were coming in, and the idea was that oil and chemical companies always had more or less the same kind of view, and so there was, you know, you couldn't hedge your position, but you wanted to hedge because obviously, you know, you, you did get it wrong, and so the idea was let's have a futures market at NYMEX and let's get the New York dentists and the Belgian dentists and so on to pop out from the chair, uh, inflicting pain on their patients and speculate you know, a little to bit. Do two little bit. You know, and uh, and speaking, of, and that created the liquidity. And if you go back, you know, for years and years, you the futures market had about twice the physical market, which is perfect. So you could always hedge your position. Somebody was prepared to take to take the other view. You could be right. They could be right. That was how it worked. And then you got into the the stimulus programs, and suddenly hedge funds had this enormous amount of money, and they started running algorithms and so on. And they came to the view that if the oil price is going up, then the dollar is going down. Oh, that's great. Now we've got a, a, a position here. So they would, they would, if they bought, decided to buy the dollar, they would sell oil. And if they decided to sell you know, the other way around. And so for a long time, you know, if you, if you go back to, to 2014 or so, you know, the oil price peaked at 125 bucks or something, but there was never a shortage, never, ever a shortage. It was purely the hedge funds selling dollars and buying oil, right? And then the bubble burst and the oil prices we know in 20, 2015 went down to 30 bucks. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, and, and kind of life continued as, as normal. What we've seen in the past sort of nine months or so year is that the hedge funds and, and you know, the volume is 10 to 15 times physical. So it's not two times, not a benign two times where, you know, I've got a view, you've got a view, we're trading between each other, but there's 14, 15 of you and one of me as a physical guy. So you overwhelm me. If you decide, and you've got free money from the Fed, so why wouldn't you? you know, if you decide that you're going to bid up the dollar, then you know, down goes oil. And that's what's happened. But if you look at the fundamentals, I hate to mention the word fundamental here, but diesel is screamingly short screamingly short in a way that we haven't seen for 10 or 15 years. 
So now we have a genuine crisis of demand. And you know, the, the energy correspondent at Reuters is very good. And I advise anyone to follow him, John, John Kemp, um, is, is, is saying consistently, the only way that we will bring this back into balance is through a recession. Because we can't make enough diesel, given the configurations of refineries. And of course, one of the things that's happening is we're moving towards electric vehicles, which means that people aren't investing in refineries anymore. Right. They're closing them down. Right. right. And that's perfectly natural and so on. But in the short term, of course, you never get the balance right. Sometimes you're going to have too much. Sometimes you're going to have too little. But it's not helped by all this money going into do do dollar versus commodity trades. Um, because you know, that distorts, you know, the prime role, if I come back to something, the prime role of a market is price discovery. I have an idea about what I need to pay and what it's worth. You have an idea about what it's worth. And we meet in a market to settle that price. And either I buy and I, or you sell or the other way around, or we don't do a trade because we don't like the price. But when the central banks interfere with this, you know, the, the Fed, you know, $7.8 trillion, when they come in, they completely destroy that key function. And so the reason why I'm very cautious about how these things play out is what happens as we now move back to price discovery, genuine price discovery in the markets? At what point are we going to find, for example, that people realize they have to pay double the price for diesel in order to get hold of it? What, you know, what does that do? What are, they, what are they going to do when they realize that the prices of food are skyrocketing because you haven't got any fertilizer? How does this play out? I don't know. We've never seen this before, but I don't. I don't think it means that watching Fed and re reading Dear Nick in the Wall Street Journal will help you plot the uh, the course of uh, of interest rates. So, do you uh, obviously you could go either way? But do you, would you say the risk for oil is it to the upside or to the downside? Well, it's if 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 by some wonderful chance the war came to an end then oil prices would go down. I think, you know, uh, because at that point, the OPEC plus cartel would would would, 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 would collapse. Um, I don't actually think that's very likely. Uh, unfortunately, I think the war is going to be with us for some years uh, because the problem that nobody's really worked out at the moment is how does this end? You know, if Ukraine were to win, then it's quite likely that Putin would use nuclear weapons at some point. Equally, if Putin were to win, then it's quite likely that his next stop would be a NATO, a NATO country. Either way, that doesn't look very good. So, you know, essentially what you're doing is you're keeping Ukraine in play. You're keeping Ukraine fighting. This doesn't sound great. This doesn't sound, you know, this is not very nice for Ukraine. Uh, but that is geopol this is geopolitics in action for you. Western world's point of view, we don't want Ukraine to lose. Um, we're actually not sure that at the moment uh, we, 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 can, we, we can help them to win uh, because the consequences for that, you know, nuclear escalation are real. And, uh, you know, the fact that we don't want to talk about nuclear escalation uh, doesn't mean that it could not happen. And what about natural gas? I remember there was a time earlier this year where you were quite optimistic about uh, German, German uh, Chancellor Olaf Scholz plan to import a lot of liquefied natural gas, uh, invest in green, green energy. I know there's been a lot of work on the nuclear front as well. 
interestingly, as of a month ago, I think uh, European storage of liquid natural gas was actually high, meaning, oh, what? What are you yeah. talking about? Uh, deficit. There's actually a surplus. But that actually, that's why the price was so high was because they were buying like like mad for in the LNG market. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you? How do you think that Europe will be will sort of weather? Uh, pun in, no pun intended. This this winter, and um, yeah, uh, how do you think commodity, commodity prices will go out? Um, you know, specifically uh, natural gas, like like TTF, Dutch Dutch natural gas uh, per megawatt hour, but also electricity mm. prices, but also coal, for example, where people. People are the price of coal has absolutely skyrocketed, and actually, if you compare the price of oil to its uh, sort of BTU equivalent uh, in, in coal and natural gas, I think oil is is quite cheap. Um, so, uh, how, how do you see has, has your prognosis for the Europeans' ability to to weather uh, the lack of Russian supply uh, has it gotten better or worse over over time? What's your outlook now on how Russia? In particular, Germany. Excuse me, Europe. In particular, Germany will be able to to handle this winter and the energy. I mean, I, I think that, um, and thank you for reminding me about my comments on Scholz. I, I think that Scholz has actually done very well indeed. You know, considering you know he came into power in December, and this happened at the end of end of February. And you know what what impressed me about him was that you know within a couple of days he was there and he was articulating his policy and so on. And he wasn't going on holiday or anything else. He wasn't on holiday. He was out there buying natural gas. And, you know, he set a very clear objective, President Macron in France, the same, uh, the European Commission, you know, they play, they worked together incredibly well. And they got, you know, they said, look, we've got to get this storage filled. So we are, you know, we have now got very high levels of storage in key countries like uh, Germany and so on. Not so much in Eastern Europe, uh, because unfortunately the pipelines all come from Russia and there isn't a way of getting that there. In fact, we're, we're kind of overbought at the moment in that uh, uh, apparently, you know, the Reuters is, re is reporting to you know, th this week that um, we're actually seeing lines of, t of LNG tankers lining up outside ports because there isn't enough capacity to, could you, to, uh, to discharge them. And that's, you know, it's one of the things they, they've had to buy LNG vessels in order to discharge LNG into the LNG vessel so that it can then go into the storage pipeline because LNG is liquefied and you have to turn it back to a gas. We won't go into the detail, but it, you know, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. And there aren't that many you know, systems set up to do it. So, um, so yes, the price has come down, but the, the question that we don't know the answer to uh, is a bit like the question of the hurricane season in the States. You know, we get a forecast from the, the NOAA uh, at the start of the hurricane season that says it's going to be big season or not. Uh, this year they were slightly worried about it, but actually we were we were kind of lucky. Well, yes, we were lucky, but if you were in certain parts of Florida, you weren't lucky sort of thing. Um, at the moment, uh, you know, what we're really looking at is, are we going to have a hard winter, in which case we'll just about get by. But the the issue you've got here is that 70% of natural gas demand in Europe, roughly speaking, is for industry and 30% is for domestic consumers. And there is no mechanism for shutting off domestic consumers. Now, if you've got a factory, you've got a, a, a pipe and you can turn the valve and you can say, sorry, Jack Farley, Inc., you're not getting any gas, right? But you can't do that to Jack Farley at home because there's there isn't 
the mecha- you know, you're going to have to have an individual person going round the subdivision, turning it all off and turning it all on again, which is clearly impossible. So what you're reliant on is you, the, the, the experts tell us that we need a 20% reduction in overall demand. And what we're seeing is a very positive response from the general public that they they see if they if they use you know so we turn the thermostat down uh we don't have so many hot showers you know we do all the things that make our lives slightly uncomfortable but overall we stay at a basic level because if we had a very hard winter if we had and let's not let's not, not anticipate too much but just oh, you know, what's the worst side so if we had a very hard winter then large companies like BASF which are 50 percent dependent in Germany and Ludwig Carven on Russian gas would have to shut down because there wouldn't be the gas available. And they've, yeah, this has been on the front page of the New York, of the Wall Street Journal uh, in the summer that they've been, you know, conscientiously planning for this. And if that happened, then the entire German economy would take a tremendous hit because for all the reasons we've said, you know, chemicals made at that site, which is seven kilometers, if nearly five, five miles long along the river, it's a vast site, largest site in the world, um, that if that site had to shut down, the knock-on effects into the rest of the European economy would be enormous and job losses and so on. So while we hope we don't go there, it's not something that they have uh, uh, overruled and not something that the German government, we don't know. We have to accept one of the things about this world is that we don't know what's going to happen to the weather. Uh, we can cross our fingers and toes and do everything we like, but um, it's not, you know, we don't know. And, and what we do know, that the great thing that Schultz and Macron and the commission did was to force Putin to play his hand early. So what he obviously planned was, first of all, he thought he would just walk into Ukraine and take it and nobody would bother him. And then he thought, well, they, they, they won't take any hard decisions or anything else. You know, I'll get them when we get to October. I'll suddenly announce in October, that's it, guys, I'm shutting down the pipeline. But they actually forced him to start doing that in the summer. And so they actually got public opinion. It wasn't any more warning that this might happen. Public could see that it was happening. He actually got desperate enough that he blew up the pipeline, uh, you know, and so on. So you you can you can see that the public is now aware of what's happening. They're aware that they have a crucial role in this, and they are playing that role. So right. how it works out, I don't know. But we've had very very positive leadership, which has been great. And how severe do you think the recession will be in Europe? Do you think it will be worse than the one in the U.S.? Because, you know, I just pulled up the Germany manufacturing PMI. And in March of 2020 and in 2008, you know, it reached low 30s. A reading under 50 is contraction. A reading above 50 is growth. During a mild recession, I guess, like it had in 2012, it PMIs that was in the the low 40s. I mean, how bad do you think this will be? Do you think this will be on the level of... 2020 or, or 2008 and then also you know, because of that i mean are you more bearish on european stocks than you are on american stocks well uh the the way i look at it is that germany has become an economic powerhouse not because of domestic demand because it's actually one of the oldest populations in the world you know germany japan italy uh all go together median age is around 45 or so so well, well over the hill uh, if you like, in terms of demand growth and everything, but because they've had very cheap uh, Russian gas. So if you have very cheap energy, um, as you know, we've seen with the States 
uh, in the in the past, you can generate growth because you can sell. You know, so Germany, Germany's main market has been China. Uh, so logic tells you that yeah, you know, a China is slowing. You know, twenty nine percent of China's economy is real estate that is clearly uh, in decline. Twenty percent is exports that is clearly in decline. So not a lot of prospects for Germany in China anyway, or for anybody else for that matter. And at the same time, you've got this major pressure on on on, on prices and employment. So uh, the you know logic would tell you that there is considerable downside risk at the moment. What I notice also, and this is important for the states, is if you look at the retailers, the split of retail, you know, everybody goes to shops. And what happens is when things are going well, people tend to trade up. So they trade from the dollar shops to discounters into the more established stores. And if you're already going to the established stores, you trade up to the premium brands. And you say, well, I'll treat the family, you know, to the, you know, whatever it is, the best, you know, quote the best or whatever, whatever it is. Uh, but the same process happens going down. And so what we're seeing now is very clearly that more people are going to the discounters and the dollar stores, that the volume of sales is coming down. Uh, you know, our friends at, uh, at P&G are, uh, you know, are saying, oh, yes, well, you know, we didn't get any volume, but we managed to push through our prices last quarter. When I talk to people in the retail area, they say, I think they're going to have an unpleasant surprise because having pushed through the prices, what happens is people go into the store and they say, it's X for that Colgate thing, shaving cream, for example, or Y for the own brand. I think I'll try the own brand. And given that a lot of own brands are made in the same factories as the thing, they say, you know, it didn't really irritate my skin. I think it was okay. So, yeah. you know, and, and, and the, the point of this is you're talking about leads and lags. So you don't automatically trade down, but when somebody pushes up a price, that often triggers a response to say, I think I'll try a cheaper competitor. And so what I'd be looking at if I was in the States today is what's happening to you know, look at the retail sales reports, not overall, but what's happening to the balance between the high margin ones and the lower margins. Obviously, right. people will still be buying Tiffany Jewels. I mean, people like yourself earning vast fortunes from bringing this wonderful content to everybody. You know, I mean, you naturally be buying uh, at Tiffany's for Christmas. Uh, you know, and, you know that, that's great. People like humble scribbles like myself, you know, we'll be going to Dollar General and uh, seeing if we can get get, a, get get something, you know, cheap. <laughs> yeah, you when you're buying diamonds, you like to buy cheap diamonds, you know. You don't like to splurge. Well, I, I actually like the, the zirconite ones myself, you know, and I, I, I hope they're not noticed. <laughs> uh, Paul, that that is, if you're, if you're right, uh, I mean, if we're headed to a, a global recession, I mean, definitely will be a different world than the world that we've known from the summer of 2020 yeah. to you know recently where the economy has been growing. Yeah. I mean, when the economy is growing and the economy is shrinking, it's a different feeling oh. uh, and, and, and everyone yeah. can feel it. Paul, it's been such a pleasure having you uh, on, on Forward Guidance. I, we've referenced throughout our interview uh, your report, the PH report, and Forward Guidance is running a special uh, where mm. listeners uh, can get $1,000 off uh, your research service. So it, just so people know, it normally costs uh, $10,995. 
per year, uh, but they can get it for $9,995. And, you know, as people can can listen from the price point, uh, it it might be uh, uh, expensive for uh, the the sort of a lot of retail investors. So tell us, uh, Paul, who is the typical client base for the PH report? And why? And why might they be interested in, in, in subscribing? Well, we, we, we have we have three sort of um, types of clients, if you like. Uh, we obviously have in institutional investors who like to uh, go into detail uh, in this area, and you know that helps to guide their their, their trading activities and their their brokerage recommendations and so on. Uh, we also have corporates uh, because you know if 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 you if you look at the the main forecasters. They tend to be much of a muchness. They don't want to say anything that's bad because that might cause cancellations and so on. As I say, they've got high overheads. Whereas we, we, if we see something bad coming on, or if we see something good, uh, we tell you about it straight away. So we're a bit of a sort of, um, as I say, litmus test uh, in that sense. And then we also have uh, quite a lot of wealth managers and high net worth individuals as well. Uh, because if you've got a reasonable portfolio or if you've got a client base of, uh, of, of people with reasonable portfolios, uh, you know, you, people find that what, we, what we're talking about is fairly relevant. I mean, every three months, uh, as you know, we, we do an in-depth uh, deep dive on the auto industry and what's happening there. And so, you know, if, if you're interested in autos, either for, as an industry itself or as an indicator of the wider economy, you can find a lot of stuff there that we pull together, together, as I say, always with the judgment, which is what people find helpful. So um, so it's, it's quite a nice little balance uh, that we have. And of course, it does mean that we can talk to these people and we gain the benefit of their insights as well. So it's a two way, two way process that, uh, that happens. Right. And your report is on specific industries, autos, chemicals, uh, policies for, for commodities, uh, OPEC, stuff like that. It, it is very in the weeds. You know, as you said about yield curves, there are different research products that are great that people talking about yield curves, but you're, you're very specialized uh, and industry specific. And, you know, I, I do encounter a lot of research and it is the most, you know, in-depth de- in uh, uh, industry specific resource that, that I've come across. Paul, if people want to uh, take advantage of this deal and sign up, uh, where should they email? And also, is it, can they get a free um, a sample report just to see what they're, they're getting before yeah. they, you know, pan over the, oh, the $10,000 check? I would, yeah, I mean, it'd be, be lovely if people just want to, uh, to write a check. That's fine. Uh, but yeah, no, uh, normally people like, a, like, like, like to see a copy or two. And we're very happy to do that. Uh, I mean, the easy, easy way is I could either um, contact you uh, direct and you could pass it on jack or if people want to write to us our you know our, our um, d- details are on the web it's it, the the company is new normal consulting and the website is new hyphen normal.com um so uh, if you go there there's uh, an opportunity to uh, well you can read some of the the free stuff that we have like our blog and so on that gives you a bit more of a taste right and is there an email uh, address and- so if people want to reach out to me they can reach out to me at jack at blockworks.co is there an email address that people should reach out to the new normal so for, for, for me it's p hodges at new uh hyphen normal.com wonderful and we will uh, add those email addresses in the description and links so you can uh click the link and, and get that that free sample paul it's been a total pleasure having you on, on forward guidance uh thanks so much looking forward to doing this again soon yeah well, it'll be interesting to see wh- where we are in three months time won't it it definitely will. Definitely will. Uh, so if, you, if you look at the pace of change of, of where we were six months ago and where we were last time we talked 
and where we are today. You know, you have to say that there's stuff going on today at a really accelerated pace. And, uh, you know, I think you're doing, if I may say so, I think you're doing a great job, Jack, in keeping everybody up to date on all this. Uh, thank you, Paul. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for watching. A few housekeeping items before I let you go. Subscribe to the BlockWorks Macro YouTube channel so you don't miss another episode of Forward Guidance. Uh, you can find Forward Guidance, the podcast you just listened to, on your favorite podcast app. That's Apple Podcast, Spotify, Overcast, Podbean. That's uh, Podbean as in on this pod, I've been saying that the Fed pivot is still far away. In addition, please check out today's sponsor. It really helps the show. Link is in the description. Finally, BlockWorks is looking for a video editor. Go to blockworks.co slash careers to learn more. Thanks for watching.